0: If I need to, I can go without it, but we will, uh, it's probably better I don't shout this passage at you today. Uh, speaking of which, I asked Michael, because there's some variations in how this passage is outlined, how I should, you know, narrow it down, and so he's left it up to me, so I figured we'd finish off with, uh, start Matthew 7 and finish up with the Great Commission. Um, I'm just kidding. Now I know you <laughs> Yeah, just kidding. Um but seriously, it is an interesting passage to, to begin with, as it's really in its nature. Uh, invitation would be a, a softer word for what it is, uh, but it is the finishing up of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but the passage we're going to look at today, the text, uh, it confronts us with a great spiritual reality. Uh, it's an inescapable reality uh, with real consequence. So wherever we've come from, wherever we are, wherever we are planning to go, God is calling us to hear his word today and follow his way in obedience. And as I mentioned, the context of this is uh, the Sermon on the Mount that we've been going through over the past few months. Uh, this passage is uh, what most commentators consider to be the conclusion of that. And uh, we've, as I've said, we've been walking uh, through from Matthew 5 to 7 over the last few months. Um, looking at the Sermon on the Mount together. Um, And these series of teachings from Jesus, they provide a condensed uh, description of how followers of Jesus are to live in light of the kingdom of God. Uh, Throughout these chapters, we read of what are known as the Beatitudes, uh, which are a group of blessed are statements, or in some translations, happy are statements. They point us to what seems backwards in our world, but are truly the path to true, lasting happiness and life that is for us in Christ. But Jesus' teachings about the kingdom of God, while beautiful to us, are not only considered contrarian in our day, but they were also in Jesus' day, especially among the religious of that day, um, who prided themselves on outward rituals, rites, ceremonies, sacraments, and all of their man-centered morality. And with this over and over throughout Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as well as elsewhere in Scripture, we see a way of life presented in which a group of people that God is setting aside for Himself are distinct from this world. We see a way of living in the kingdom of God in which God's people are light in the darkness, a people who seek to live their lives pure of hatred and adultery, a people known For truth. The people who don't just seek God in prayer, but seek to glorify God and reconciliation, not serving their pride, but serving the poor, serving one another. I encourage you to, to actually look around you today. If you're uncomfortable looking around and picture in your mind the earlier time of fellowship, the church itself is a testimony of the powerful working of God. People love to talk about healings, love to talk about miracles. But I think the church, with every heart in it that has been transformed to want to live their life in such a way, is an incredible miracle that we should just be amazed by and it should compel us to worship. But remembering all of this, the many teachings of Jesus, some tried to make sure that we don't allow this just to become a statement of ethics. We keep the cross of Jesus Christ at the center, lest we drift and fall into the religious legalism that the teachers of the law in Jesus' day were so prone to do. For it is the work of God, the power of the gospel. So as you hear the word of God today and are called to respond to it, I encourage you to consider the many generations of believers since this sermon, on the Mount who have gone before, the great cloud of witnesses, those when faced with the inescapable choice of Jesus or the world said yes to Jesus and no to the world. Consider them who have faithfully carried out the great commission of Christ to the point that you and I are here today. Should give us pause just to reflect on the generations that have gone before us, beyond just bridge, beyond the community that we in this room can say we knew, but far, far before that, the faithfulness of those who said yes to Jesus and no to the world. So you may think, why such an introduction? The reality is, is that when we are looking at a passage like this today, where we're presented with two ways, it's easy to fall potentially into the temptation to just make sure we have our box checked. When we hear words like, I never knew you, they're scary. Let me make sure my box is checked. And I just want to make sure that our focus is really keeping the broad picture, the meta narrative, as some say, the whole picture of Scripture, that God is redeeming people to Himself, and that this is in the context of that. So let's look At Matthew um, 7, 12 through 29, we'll really focus on 13 through 27. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few." And thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them. I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. and not as their scribes. It's a difficult passage, isn't it? As mentioned, it confronts us with a great um, spiritual reality. And often this this passage is used by teachers to, to teach in such a way to put fear into people to, in some sense, drive them to make a decision. And I do think that part of what is in this passage is urging the listener to truly consider what they believe. But I hope today that the sermon will be a slightly different tone uh, that we can both be challenged by and be encouraged in as Jesus to his people of this time and also to the people in this room today calls us to decision. So as we see laid out in this text, um, at least in the ESV translation, if you look at some others, particularly the CSB, this whole section gets um, categorized under entering the kingdom. Uh, but here in the ESV, we see two paths, we see two trees, we see two ways to call on Christ, and we see two uh, foundations. And so first we'll start with the two paths. But before I do that, do a quick uh, poll. There's a lot of uh, organizations that do polls and research in churches, and I just want to kind of see where we're at today. How many of you are Waze users on your phone for getting from one place to another? How many of you are Waze? All right. How many of you are Google Maps? How many of you are Google Maps because Waze has been disappointing you over the last couple of years? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I have used... um, Used ways for a long time and being Malaysian. Then one day I put in to go to Wan Utama from an area going a direction I was unfamiliar, and I ended up over in Chiras. And about halfway through, I was like, "This is not right." And uh, and so after that, I have become an avid Google Maps user. Anybody using an Apple Maps in here? God bless you. You must have far more success than I do. Um, anyway, the the thing with these apps is typically when you put in. Um, the address of where you want to go and one way or another, depending on the formatting of the app, they will give you multiple routes, right? You usually have approximately three options. You have the fastest proposed, and then you have these other ones. Sometimes you're wondering why in the world was this even proposed? It's like, all right, we've got a one hour, you know, 45 minutes and seven hours, you know, and you're thinking, okay, I think I'm going to go with the lesser. Um Tongue-in-cheek, joking, uh, share this illustration because I think that often uh, in various cultures, and I'm seeing this not just in Western cultures, I'm seeing this in Asian cultures as well, um, these universalistic mindsets that are creeping in um, and taking a stronghold, um, where in a sense we think, okay, we're all right here as people, and heaven's right here. We're all going to kind of eventually get there, right? Just some of them are going to go the 45-minute route, um, some are going to go the 20 minute route, uh, which is, you know, they might think that's the grace way, you know, and then others are going to take the eight hour of hard works to get there, you know, um, in, that kind of mindset, um, it's easy to kind of look at it, step back and say, yeah, that's kind of a lot of people think that way, um, that there are these multiple paths, uh, you get bonus points. If you guess where that's from and to, but, um, destination harvest, but anyway, Um, We'll change the slide in a moment so you don't spend the next 30 minutes guessing. Um, It was really just there for illustration. Um, But the the reality is is that we we fall into this temptation uh, to believe that there are multiple paths. Now, I would hope that those in this room do not. Um, But we often find that we've met along the way people who are professing believers uh, who when they are confronted or think about this in some way, you can see a softness there in terms of, well, I think that so-and-so will have made it uh, to heaven in some way or another. And, and honestly, when I put myself, myself, not myself, so I'm not a multiple person here. uh, When I put myself in their shoes, I can see often how hard that is when you consider, especially the many of you in this room who come from a different religious background and you're processing, What does this mean for my uncle, for my aunt, for my grandmother? What does this mean? And and I'm here to tell you that's a difficult, difficult thing uh, to walk through. And I challenge you if that's something you're struggling with, to find a a mature believer in Christ or find a pastor and and work through that. Um, Pray through that together um, rather than just letting that kind of rest undealt with in the back of your mind. Uh, But if we look here... um, At Matthew 7, 13 through 14, we see this enter by the narrow narrow gate. Um, We see the narrow gate and we see the wide gate, right? If you jump ahead to John 14, 6, Jesus is found saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a very bold statement. It's a statement that a lot of people in this world don't like because Jesus, in a sense, is saying there is only one way to heaven. There's only one way to the Father. And this is a difficult thing for people to grasp and to get with, and quite honestly, it is a spiritual work, and we don't want to take anything away from the fact that that is the Holy Spirit's working in a person's heart and mind upon hearing the gospel preached that they come to believe Jesus's words to be true. But the reality is, we look at this, it leaves no room for anything but two choices. It's either the way of Christ, or it's all the other ways. Some of those ways are involve works to get to God. Some of those ways involve simply just throwing up our hands and saying, who knows, I don't believe in God. It's Christ or no Christ, heaven or hell. And Jesus does not allow them to kind of wiggle or squeeze uh, past this truth. He confronts them with, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And so many in this room would acknowledge in some way that their past religious life probably felt more like the narrow. Anybody, you don't have to raise your hands, but if you come from a background that's not a Christian, um, you probably came from a religion that was very based on laws and rules and following these set things, that if you do these things, then in hope, maybe God will allow you into heaven. And so it's hard to even imagine here for those who have left that to come to Christ and the freedom that is in Christ to kind of process, well, what does that mean, the narrow and difficult path? Um, The reality is Jesus is saying His way is not easy, but it is the way to life, which here ultimately refers to the eternal life we have in Christ. We know from Scripture that a life on earth with Jesus Christ at the center is a good life. However, we also know that it does not mean it will uh, be a life absent of suffering, correct? That this uh, life in Jesus does not um, equate good life um, with a prosperous life free of suffering. Jesus did say, take up your cross and follow me. And he also said, whoever loves his life will lose it. But he also said in Matthew 11, Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And in John 10.10, he says that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. If we look elsewhere in Scripture, in particular the Psalms, we see the psalmist saying in 16.11, You reveal the path of life to me, and your presence is abundant joy. In one nineteen twenty five my life is down in the dust. Give me life through your word. 119.37, turn my eyes from looking at what is worthless. Give me life in your ways. Psalm 119.93, I will never forget your precepts, for you have given me life through them. And Psalm 119.107, I'm severely afflicted, Lord. Give me life according to your word. It's even sweeter when we look at John 6. If you recall, whenever the uh, disciples are talking with Jesus, it says in verse 60, therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples, disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and our life. But there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that none can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. For that moment, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. It's a weighty verse. I think often I remember when I was growing up, people would say, man, if I could just walk in the time, of Jesus and meet Jesus, like faith would be so much easier. Believing in him would be so much easier. And here are those who are right alongside him and and chose to turn back and no longer accompany him. Why? Because the teaching was hard. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? But look, at John 68, 69, beautiful uh, picture here of the testimony of the disciples who were walking with him. 68, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Church, it may be a difficult way, but it is a wonderful, sweet, and beautiful way when it's with Jesus. Not only is it a promise of eternal life, but it's a life of meaning and purpose, grounded in who God is. A life in community with other believers, and best of all, a life and community with the one true God. So those of us who've been walking with the Lord long enough to know difficult times can begin to reconcile the the tension here between the challenge of being a follower of Christ, whether it's persecution or other things, but also the joy, the turning to God in our darkness and Him meeting us there, uh, that life that is there. If we move on, we see in Matthew 7, 15 through 20, he starts to talk about the false prophets and the fruit, the diseased tree. Now, Jesus has shown the way by which he should be followed, but he also points out along the way that those people we encounter and how we should respond to them. If you look at Matthew 7, 15, he says, be on guard against what? False prophets, false teachers. These people claiming to be spokespersons of God. They would have outwardly appearance of godly people that seem to deserve our listening. However, Jesus emphatically warns his followers that these false teachers are ravenous wolves seeking to devour others for their own personal gain. We need to be careful of these people who claim to be teachers of the word, for they appear to be near to God when in reality their hearts are far from God. Now, some of you may be thinking, isn't it wrong to judge what you're asking us to do, what Jesus is asking us to do in a sense is judging, correct? To say, oh, his teaching is false. Yes, when it comes to judgment and discernment, we must be careful with our hearts and our lips. But here Jesus calls us still to be aware and discerning. So may we heed Jesus's caution, be ready to discern what is a false prophet or teacher, and who is truly a teacher of God's Word. For these false teachers are a cancer to the Christian community as they lead people astray. So how are we to discern? Observing their fruit, correct? We observe their fruit. Jesus says you'll recognize them by their fruit, but with that said, while the identification of the tree is certain, we need to recognize it's not always easy and quick. If you know them before sometimes someone who immediately seemed like a believer. And maybe for the first few weeks and first few months, they seemed like they were the real deal. But over time, as things start to happen, you realize there was a lot of confession. They knew the right things to say, uh, but conversion had not happened. Um, it could go the other way. You could have someone who's maybe not as verbal uh, with what they've learned from the word. And you could have questions, but then you start to look at their walk and you start to see the fruit. You're know, like, Wow, this person loves Jesus, and he loves his neighbor. And so we just need to recognize that it's not always I can walk up to any of you at any point and say fruit or no fruit. Uh, it takes time. Um, but most importantly, we must become students of the way of Jesus, knowing the word. Uh, we think of the Bereans in Acts 17, 11, who are known for checking the word against the teachers says they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if things were so. So let me just stop you. Do not, do not take the uh, command or the call to be a person of discernment and, and judging if you are not in the word regularly, because most likely you're going to make discernments. You're going to make judgments based on what? your opinion on your thoughts. And it's going to be a mess with some of these teachings you've heard along the way. Oh, I remember, you know, uh, pastor Michael said this one thing and this kind of sounds like this and yeah, you're wrong. Um, we need to be in the word daily. Um, another thing I just want to point out because the language is strong when he says every tree that doesn't produce fruit, a good fruit is what it's cut down. Thrown into the what? Fire. Okay, maybe good to bring some clarification to the responsibility of a believer, and uh, that we're not going to be throwing anybody into fire. Okay, we do not do that here at Harvest KL. Um, the typical response in the New Testament was not to execute the teacher, although said malpractice may have done that. The punishment typically was excommunication or sending out to, to get that cancer out of the community. Um, We must remember that while as Christians we're called to be watchful and stand firm in our faith, discerning right from wrong, we're also called to do things with love and gentleness. So you heard me say that, right? Love and gentleness. Say it. Love and gentleness and with God's word at the center. I think it's also helpful to remember in Ephesians 6 that our battle is not against flesh and blood. So often when we have differences with people, our battle becomes flesh and blood very, very quickly. And we need to be constantly reminded that we are in a spiritual battle, not a physical one. So our fight is not with our brother. Our fight is not with our sister. Our fight is not with the unbeliever. Our fight is with the spiritual demonic powers that are in this world. We fight that through prayer. We fight that through the preaching of God's word. Moving on to one of the harder uh, Parts of this passage, the two calls, um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Um, just as the community may learn that a teacher is a false teacher, a person one day may find out that he or she was not a genuine believer. It's a scary thought, right? It's a difficult text. Um, Jesus says the Son will come and say, Lord, Lord, only to hear Jesus say what? I never knew you. It's difficult. First, the idea that Jesus would reject someone who seems to love and follow Jesus is confusing, right? If we're honest with ourselves, we, we wrestle with that. But second, it's difficult because it causes us to look at our own hearts and ask hard questions about our own spiritual faith. Is it genuine? Am I that person? What draws me to Christ? Am I here for Jesus? Am I here for another reason? But I want to encourage you. One, do allow Jesus' words to sting. Do allow it to, to confront your heart. But I also encourage you not to allow these passages to cause worry or fear that is not of God. Look at what John says in two of his writings. First, John 5.13 says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may what? For those who are familiar with this one, so that you may know that you have eternal life. John 15.8, My Father is glorified by this that you produce much fruit and what prove to be my disciples? Does it seem that there's a desire of God for us to have confidence in our salvation? It does to me. As I look at the whole of Scripture, it seems to me that that assurance of salvation is something God wants us to have. And I believe that we can have. And that's a whole other sermon that Michael can preach sometime on the assurance of salvation. But I share that because I do think that it's easy to take these passages and um, get kind of caught up in the fear aspect of it. J.D. Greer, one of his books, once wrote about how he had perhaps set the world record for the number of times asking Jesus into his heart, you know, and that's what this fear and unsureness can, can cause. But, but the reality is God wants us to be sure. He said that his desire is that we would produce much fruit proving to be his disciples. He wrote to us so that we could know him. Not so that we could spend the rest of our lives doubting rather when we get there, that's other religions who do so much and they try so hard to follow all the steps and then just hold out a little bit of hope. That God will grant them entrance into heaven. It's not our faith, however, we should take these words seriously and examine our hearts. So, like I said, rather let rather than being led to doubt, let this lead you to prayerfully examine your faith more closely, with God's word in hand. Let that be emphasized, and also even better, don't be afraid to do it with your pastor, with your brothers and sisters in faith. So. It collapsed with a great uh, great crash. So church, I just ask you, what path are you walking on? What are you building your life on? The warning here is clear. If you're building your life on anything other than the word of God, the truth of who God is, you will one day find yourself standing before God, hearing these painfully difficult words, I never knew you. And often when this text is taught or studied, people may miss the weight of what is being said here as they move quickly to relating to the rains, floods, and winds mentioned here to be the storms of life. And while I think that holds true, um, we can also miss the aspect that the key message here is that not making Jesus Christ the rock which you build your life on will result in the ultimate eternal collapse of your life. Jesus is very, very direct in calling that person a fool. If you look at other places in Scripture, uh, Proverbs says a lot about fools. uh, But looking at Psalm 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. Key thing of the fool, the fool opposes the things of God. He stubbornly builds his house on anything but firm foundation, he does not seek or seek or serve God, but rather he seeks and serves himself, acting wickedly. And before you think you're off the hook, um, notice that building our life on sand is not always apparently wicked. It um, can be well seen in the life of the person who's busy doing apparently good things. The family man who spends lots of good quality time with his wife and kids. The hardworking businesswoman. The straight-A student the person volunteering part-time at the refugee school during the week. All these things are are good things. But if you take God out of the picture, it becomes clear very quickly that your foundation is not on Christ, but rather on you and the good life that you're creating for yourself. So I encourage you to, to don't be the fool mentioned in Matthew 7, not thinking of the things of God, running towards yourself rather than towards God. Um, And don't fool yourself into thinking you can work your way out of being a fool to being accepted by God. The Pharisees and those who are really the target often in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout Jesus' teaching, they were the the law followers who thought they were going to carry their big old book of laws right into the pearly gates of heaven. Um, When Jesus was telling them that's not the way. In fact, to to use the law, you have to even exceed their righteousness uh, who thought they were most righteous. And so your rock, your hope, your foundation cannot be on anything but the gospel of Jesus Christ found in God's word. Earlier we read Romans 10. I won't read that again, but it very clearly calls us that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So coming back to this, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Before you go on to make something, I don't want to say wrong of Jesus' statement, but sometimes we can kind of get kind of a political slant in thinking about what's happening here. It's like my side, your side, I'm the only way. And while he was clearly asserting his divine uh, nature, um, I think it's good to recognize the context of this statement. He said um, in John 14, 1 through 4, after the disciples had had talk of unbelief, betrayal, denial, they were discouraged and troubled. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am going, you may also go. And you know the way to where I am going. And he goes on to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. These words were spoken intended to comfort. Yes, they drew a line in the sand of who Jesus was and who Jesus is. They were spoken as a word of comfort. And I think that the words that we find throughout Sermon on the Mount, uh, do not worry, but seek first what? The kingdom of God and His righteousness. God is calling us to a better life. And yes, it is a seemingly harder path at times. Although I will say, I don't want to miss uh, miss sell Um, it's a very joyful and enjoyable path to walk with Jesus, uh, spending time with Him in His Word and communion and in community with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But the reality is, is that just as this passage today can be a very confronting challenge, it can also be a great encouragement for this life and hope for eternity. So as we conclude, I think the uh, these final verses in 28-29 help us uh, to have a little bit better picture. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Note that this astonishment and amazement does not imply that people became followers of Christ. There are many throughout the Gospels who are amazed at the teachings and miracles of Jesus, but never truly repented and believed in the gospel. The truth of the matter is that it's easy to love Jesus and his teaching. He represents so much of what we long for, the love of Jesus, the peace of Jesus, the joy and happiness of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus. However, often it's easy to be drawn in because of what we're amazed by without there being any real spiritual fruit so again, I, I don't say that to say that we shouldn't be amazed by His grace. We should be. We should be astounded. We should be honestly astonished to the point of silence, have the great grace of God. But if it stops, it's simply being astonished. If it's simply loving this concept or idea of who Jesus is, but not entering through the narrow gate, as Roman 10 helps us understand how to do that, of believing confessing, repenting, and following Jesus, then there's no spiritual fruit. And in the, at the end, we are the fool, continuing to build our house on a rock without even maybe realizing it. So if you've not believed, I urge you to abandon putting your hope in this world. Quite honestly, it's either exhausting or simply depressing to continue to put your hope in this world. If you don't believe me, pull out your phone, scroll the news or your Instagram for just a minute, look for all the things that are happening and all the things people are seeking. It's exhausting. It's depressing. However, in the context of this life, he promised abundant life, didn't he? It doesn't have to be exhausting. It doesn't have to be depressing. And so, For those of you who have never put your faith in Christ, I would encourage you to strongly look at your life. Put your faith in Christ. Stop putting your faith in the works of your hands. For those of you who are following Jesus, this is a good opportunity to to look at your life. I know it's easy in the busyness working as a principal with the school. I've got a three-year-old that everybody in here should have seen at some point running around this sanctuary. Um, Life can be tiring and it can very, very quickly uh, take our eyes off of Jesus and we can begin to remove our feet from the rock. That's why I just want to finish with a very familiar hymn. If you know it, you can say it along. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is seeking sand. Let's act on Jesus' words today. Let's make Him our firm foundation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that both has the ability to confront and challenge us, not allowing us to find a place of syncretism or worldly comfort in the in-between, but causes us to choose between you and this world. God, we're reminded of so many passages that, that really urge us to not fall in love with this world, but to fall in love with you, our creator. I pray today that if anyone is wrestling with rather they should follow Jesus, I pray that they would find someone, that they would open their, the Word of God with, and that they would find you uh, right there, not waiting on them, but having been walking them to that point already. I pray for the, for the believer here who is wrestling with their faith, who is maybe struggling with doubt. I pray that today, God, that you would, uh, through the power of your Word, through the testimony of the saints, God, give them encouragement, and assurance in their salvation. And most importantly, God, would we not keep this word to ourselves? The reality of this scripture, of Jesus being the only way, has great, inescapable um, truth for what is happening outside these walls today, across this country, across this planet, people who are walking in darkness. God, may we be a city on a hill, God, may we not hide uh, this great gospel that we have, but may we speak it boldly. And praise in Jesus' name. Amen.